Thank you, Mandy, for coming along and being a part of making a musician today. It's absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. I've been on the road too often, though I know I'm often in town. I come from a tribe of movers, though it's nice to settle down. Get a good garden dog. Stretch out on a good clean rug. How did you first find folk music? Oh, that's a good start. My mum was always into the arts and into the social services. She started going to folk clubs in the late 70s. Um, it was sort of like a, not a huge movement in Australia, but certainly a lot more common. Folk clubs were a lot more common than they are now. And it was quite easy to, to go and find some acoustic club and was hosting some songwriters and they were doing their thing. And she got my stepfather through the folk scene and for a little while we lived with him. He played folk music and had a lot of folk friends who came to visit us in the small town that we were living in, in Smeaton, outside of Creswick, outside of Dalesford. It's a long way off their own path. Then a few years after they split up, she got together with another folkie who she'd met through the scene. I guess it was a good social um, her, her new partner, then was a guy called Hugh McEwen, who was at the time he was the president of the Folk Song and Dance Society of Victoria, and he used to do kind of entrepreneurial things and quite often hosted folk musicians who were touring internationally from other countries. So I had this love of folk music from tapes and hard drives and from going to folk clubs as a small child and hearing people sing Fields of Athen Rye and people sang. I don't know, you know that turning the steel something you wake up in the morning and the sky is black as night. And you know she's winning the fight. So you venture out of the Bentley land. So you know it's getting a lane. And I just loved it so much. It was all full of fairy stories and parted lovers and unrequited stuff and industrial stories of oppression by, by feudal lords and I just, I love that stuff and then eventually, you know, I would wake up in the mornings and people like Andy Irvine or Alistair Hewlett or Andy Kenny would come out of our spare room and I would be on toast and tea duty looking up to the local celebrities and, um, or the international celebrities and they told amazing stories about traveling and touring so as a child that sounded really glamorous I guess it sounded glamorous it's definitely not a glamorous lifestyle but I really wanted to do it so that's that's kind of where it began yeah. yeah I mean it's, it's kind of hard to separate my my wanting to perform from my love of the music I guess yeah they're the same for me or no they're not the same but they're very close in time and right last is the cry With an eye on the clock And pull it on your legs You wish the time Do you actually remember what your first musical memory is? I, I have some vague memories of dancing. I used to dance down the front of stages, like in front of, you know, that strip between the audience and the stage. I'm told that I used to dance as early as four 
My mum used to make me these colourful skirts and I used to like twirling them around. And I have some vague memories of that. And Ender Kenny tells me that I was at his first Australian gig ever dancing. Like, he was doing these really soft kind of non-rhythmical ballads, not really dance music, but he said I was I was there twirling in my pretty skirts. So it could have my hazy memory could have been from that gig, maybe. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's the rain that falls from skies of broad grey. The creamy coloured steam of eyes chimneys. The eucalypt. Is there any song or film clip or performance that you remember really catching your attention when you were little? The hair used to stand up on my arms when people sang the Internationale at the Melbourne Folk Club. Um, Alistair Hewlett came through and he sang that at the end of one of his shows. And he was this crazy, almost anarchistic kind of socialist. He was really, you know, very, very political. He used to write songs about Bougainville and about the Whitman Mines. Send the world to Parliament Hill, pull Australia out right now from Bougainville. Really amazing, passionate. He did ballads and lovely soft songs as well. But then at the end of this, this gig, I think I must have been about 11, he sang the Internationale and everybody in the, in the club. This is at the, the room at the East Brunswick Club Hotel. Before Richard Moffat took it over, oh, yep. uh, it, used to, it used to host once a month the, the original Melbourne Folk Club. A lot of people don't know that it was a folk club, but it was. And I think it kind of became the only one left after the Dan O'Connell shut its folk club down and 1C1 wasn't around anymore. It was really the last bastion and you had everyone, all of the staunch old folkies, you know, beer guts and beards and fingers in one ear, their fists in the air singing Pass our comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The internationally unites the human race. There's like 80 of them and they're all singing at the top of their lungs. I think that would have been like the first gig that I really cemented in my mind. Although, I'm told I was there for the, uh, the Battlefield Band gig at the Melbourne Town Hall and uh, I do have a memory of being backstage. I don't remember the gig because I was probably, I don't know, upstairs reading a book or something, but Louis McManus gave me a mandolin lesson while he was meant to be on stage <laughs> at the Battlefield Band gig. I, I don't know if that counts because I didn't actually see the show. But it's memory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you were a teenager, did you have any pop idols? No. No? I had folk idols. I was I was a very strange teenager. I went to Northgate High and I lived directly across the creek from Northgate High. And I didn't really get along very well with my stepfather and I really hated school. So generally what I did was I spent a lot of time wandering around the Merry Creek in long skirts with a nylon string guitar trying to learn how to play Dick Gockin songs. I wanted to be Dick Gockin. To earn your pay for centuries long past For no more than your bread have left for your country Or Andy Kenny or Christina Olsen Christina Olsen was definitely, definitely an Yeah, she was a... She was an impressive one Or Sally Dasty She would have been... I would have been happy with being Sally Dasty 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm a pop idol, but um, I think the only pop record I ever bought was Meryl Bainbridge. Right. I don't even know that. Um, I, I don't even know if I can remember a song to sing with. She, she was briefly a pop thing. I'll have to look her up. Yeah. Oh, and um, I love. Oh man, I can't remember her name. The chick from Leonardo's Bride. She's actually got an amazing solo career happening now. Because in in high school when I was a teenager, that's when um, even when I'm sleeping came out. But at the time, I didn't even know what band it was. I just liked the song when it came on the radio. That was that was about as close as I came to pop. <laughs> pretty good though like to as someone who grew up in country Victoria you've um, done well because I got stuck with Wawane and Sudoeco and all of yeah. those see I and people I'm not sure that it is lucky because I try and have conversations with people of my own age group or slightly older in the case of usually flirting with men and I have no idea about any of the pop references any pop culture references people make I have no idea I can I can kind of come at a few Simpsons references, but generally, I don't even know what pseudo-echo sound like. It's embarrassing but true. Ah, oh, you're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being raised without television, you yeah. know? It's, it's, um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite strange to try and talk to So people. did you, um, you didn't get into Countdown? No. No? No. Um, TV, we didn't have a television when I was very young. Um, my mum sometimes brought home the television from the tape where she worked on the weekend and we would watch DV, we would watch videos, VHS, because DVDs had not been invented yet, or at least they weren't common. And um, yeah, we watched originally Beta and then VHS on a weekend on my mum's black and white TV or on this borrowed thing um, in the early days. And then when we moved back to Melbourne, the TV were, it really belonged to Hume, my stepfather, so we occasionally might watch The Simpsons, but TV was not, um, I didn't have access to, I couldn't just go into the lounge room and turn it on, it wasn't. Yeah, that's who um, Yeah, so I had it. We, we had a record player. <laughs> well, we had a, a record player too, and I used to sit there with my mum's records and just play them. I'd go one at a time. Like, I could never do my stepfather's 70s hits with the woman with the naked bum or whatever. Like, he had all those hot explosion, like, oh, yeah. these weird Tom albums. Waits. Oh, I don't even remember what album it is, but Tom, there was a Tom Waits cover in my mum's collection of a, of a stripper in a, in a glittery thong and nickel tassels. And um, every time I saw that record cover, I was just, I, it's, it was strange and other, and I didn't know how to deal with it. But she just said, it's a great album, you want to put it on? <laughs> so Hugh had um, child murder ballads, Alan Lomax collections, wow. all of that stuff. And, and my mom had The Doors, Pink Floyd, Janis Joplin's Pearl album. And I mean, we both like the, the folk stuff as well, but we, oh no, they're going to put music on. Um, but, but we also, you know, listen to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and all of this kind of, kind of bikey hippie music, <laughs> Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen and, yeah. 
most really great musicians will tell you. Casey Chambers was on um, Triple R the other day, live from Nashville at the Americana Fest. And she says, my mother handles babysitting, my brother does all my production work, my mother and my father handle all the bookings and all of the tour management. We have a whole team, a whole family team, just to handle her career. Just her, just as Casey Chambers. That's not even... That's not even the family and her and Shay Nicholson when they were still playing together. And, and Kate Rusby from England is one of my folk heroes. She was my, my pop icon, I guess, when I was a teenager. And also is for the May Trio, her very successful young trio from Victoria touring. They played with Jason Isbell uh, last month, I think. Um, Kate Rusby is in the same boat. Her whole family is behind her doing bookings getting the website together, organising graphics, organising the sound system. Her brother is her live sound engineer. And uh, if you're doing it on your own, or you're doing it with a band of people who all have full-time jobs, you can't listen to the should. Oh, you, you should listen to the should, but you shouldn't let it define your worthiness or your, your validity. Yeah. Because it's, it's a lot of work. Well, she helps me when I can't hold on. There's another market, another sale, another reason to believe her head cannot fail. There's deadly danger we must endure. Back in 2000 and 2006 you won awards for songwriting. I did, and yeah. Did that have a bigger impact or make you feel like there are a lot more shoulds that you should be doing because you've won awards? Yes, and yes. They were good. The awards meant that I, I had a sense of obligation. So there were a lot of pressure shoulds. So I felt there were things that I wasn't doing that I should be doing. And I felt guilty about that, which was a problem because I didn't have um, didn't have a musical family behind me, and I wasn't I didn't have anyone in the house on a regular basis that I played with. So I'd go to festivals and play, and I had community, but I always felt a little bit isolated or a little bit apart from the, the folk community. But the other thing they did was they made me feel like I had something to live up to, and that gave me a motivation. So these people saw me singing in sessions in the back of pubs at festivals. They saw me singing harmonies at the back of the audience at, at sessions or, uh, or at gigs and they saw a real kind of passion in me for for the music and they said we think you're worth investing in we think you're worth this and we don't mind being affiliated with you in fact we're going to tell people that you're really good we're going to put you on a stage and give you recognition for that effort and that was the Molden Folk Festival the Molden Minstrel Award because they run two, two awards the Roddy Reed and I, I also was recognised by the Declan Athlete Memorial Award, which was a massive deal because I reckon about 70% of the awards they gave out were for traditional music, and instrumental traditional music. And I was uncommon in that I was a vocalist. I was much younger and much more in the emerging phase than most of the people who won. And it meant that I didn't 
it didn't rocket me into productivity and I kind of sat on it for a long time and thought about it and then eventually I used the money to get me into gigs and to get me CDs to listen to and to get me some exposure to the things I wanted to be doing access into the community but that meant it just meant that I I kept going and I I didn't give up so when, when I didn't have people to play with me or I didn't have the support that I kind of saw other people getting or I felt like I wasn't getting I think I probably was getting a bit more than I thought I was I was then able to to believe a bit more about why I was doing things I was doing and keep going so yeah the awards big pressure but some of some of that was a good thing I think. I'm very grateful to those people still <laughs> Stray Hens, you guys are bringing life to folk songs from Britain and UK. So how do you come about choosing which songs you want to bring life to? <laughs> in the beginning, in the beginning I was playing gigs around town and about, I reckon a good chunk, most of the music we were doing was my original work. But I have this love of the old songs and I'd fallen in love with a version of Mad Tom of Bedlam by, recorded by Jolly Holland. Jolly Holland is, is, I would say, closer to an indie or a pop star than folk music. I think now people would classify her as folk, but in the 90s and the early 2000s, that definitely wasn't, she wasn't, she, you wouldn't call her folks then. And um, I just loved it. It was fast and it was done with a snare drum that sounded like the snare was falling down a set of stairs. And, and it was just done with that really kind of bizarre Jolly Holland style where it sounds like she's got a ball in her mouth. And, you know, she's got this great kind of distinctive voice. And I just went, wow, that's an amazing version of that song. I've been hearing it for years, think it was boring. Landed on that journey, guide me. The sun did shake and the pale moon quake wherever they did. And then I realized that I have a passion for old tradition, but I haven't always had a very deep appreciation for source music. Alan Lomax's recordings or library recordings of old folk club stuff, I don't always enjoy. And to be honest, just between you and me, I always hated, hated the Fairport Convention records. I hate, hated Fairport Convention. I actually quite loved them now. Fingal from Rapscallion really got me into 70s folk recordings. And I kind of went, ah, oh, all right, I can, I get this now. hated Pearl Jam and Nirvana and uh, came around to that, you know, in the end. But I guess the Stray Hens came about because I originally formed this, this group called Saffron Avenue, which was kind of a chance to keep doing what Jolly Holland was doing, which is finding these bizarre interpretations in my own voice of songs that I've been hearing around the campfire for a long, long time. It's really getting windy. We're getting South Australia's winds. I know. Crazy. So I guess what happened was when I when I started playing those songs with a, a drummer and a bass player who play for Tully on Tully now, who are a Triple J band, they've gone to New York. They're a very cool band. You, if you like pop, you should check out Tully on Tully. But I was playing with them and they had this kind of pop slash jazz groove and it kind of turned it into what we were calling surf folk. <laughs> I just had 
had such a good time that I really wanted to keep going and I wanted to keep reimagining Fairport Convention tunes and songs that other people see as they'll see it as a Steel Ice Band song or they see it as a Danny Spooner song but I grew up listening to these around the campfire in the actual tradition live, voice to voice, ear to ear. I fell in love with it in real time with real people. And then it took me almost decades to discover that most of those people who were singing that music fell in love with it through listening to records by Steel Ice Band. <laughs> so it kind of came full circle. And the Stray Hens is, is really... We also do a couple of originals in there. I'll, I sometimes do a, a song I wrote for my father called Pot and Tinker. And... Uh, Lately, we've also started incorporating some classic Australian songs. Uh, so the new album with the Stray Hens, which we're, we're launching this year, features uh, songs by Hugh McDonald from Redgum. Carmen O'Brien leads the vocals on uh, Diamond Tina Drover. And I can't believe he looks so much like me For it's been ten years today and there's a great song that Ryan Tooze, our drummer, arranged called Song of the Inland Rain. And he learnt it from, it was originally a Jack Sorensen poem set to music by a group that we like to hang out with at festivals called Dingo's Breakfast. And the Dingo's Breakfast are a pair of old poets who also play music and do this travelling show where they, they sing songs but they also tell stories and one of the guys Roger t does this great thing called the curses and he'll stand up and do a five to ten minute long curse you know may you be bitten by the fleas of a thousand camels you <laughs> you know great stuff and really obscure Australian history shows Ryan just loves that stuff he's an Australian he's a landscape photographer and he likes to do do stuff on analog photography and really strange ancient uh, transfer techniques and things like that. So he found this poem that they that they did and fell in love with it and said, "Oh, I think I could I think I could arrange that for the Stray Hands." And John McCoslin, who uh, we've been getting a lot of advice from, suggested that we should really include some Australian material. And we take him really seriously because John was part of the team that first put together Port Ferry. Oh, okay. And for 21 years, John ran the Brunswick Music Festival. Oh, okay. Uh, which is obviously one of my biggest influences coming from Brunswick and being a big fan of multiculturalism. Those festivals were part of the initial drive in the 80s and 90s in the folk scene to incorporate folk traditions from other cultures as well, because obviously we're, we're a very diverse group of people and um, the British tradition is not exactly the Australian tradition. There's, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I love, I love the British tradition um, and I like to think that tr traditional English or traditional Scottish music is not, uh, not necessarily a colonialist thing or an Anglophile thing. It's, for me, it's, it's a working class and, and an old tradition thing. And it's not as interesting in some ways as creation stories from indigenous communities and it's not necessarily as flamboyant as some of the Greek or the Russian dancing, but it's got a big part of my heart. And I, I guess the other reason I wanted to do these ballads and, and put them into a, a really exciting band with drums and bass and really hot chicks playing fiddle and like, wow, big noise stuff. I guess I wanted to make those songs accessible and place them in, in a scene which in the 90s when I was growing up had a lot of 
emphasis on songwriters and it had a lot of emphasis on Irish fiddle playing or uh, Scottish fiddle playing or traditions like that and, and often featured dance acts or, or bands from other countries, Greek acts, amazing stuff. I just wasn't seeing a lot of ballads and I love the ballads. The ballads need to, they're part of my storytelling tradition and I, I really love that and that's that's what made me fall in love with playing and, and performing and being a participant in music in the first place. So I guess Stray Hands is mostly that. Finding a place for the ballads that's contemporary and also Australian, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah, the working class like folk scene, like when I think Pete Seeger went on his journey, he went and tried to get all the folk songs mm-hmm. written down. Yeah, it was a working class rather than a folk. That's right, and Alan Lomax said that collecting that music was really important because as we started to get mass media, printing mass prints of records and uh, mass distribution of broadsheets and things like that, we started to narrow the voices that we heard. We started hearing more of the same and less diversity. And he, I don't say it very well, there's a fantastic guy from Portland who runs a, a company called Mississippi Records who was just out here last month. I think it was last week, actually. I was here at the Northcote Social Club and he came and did a presentation on this and he, he quoted Lomax much better than I ever will, but effectively it was about diversity and being able to hear the stories and the culture of, of people everywhere. And, and Lomax felt like the internet was an amazing thing but also a damaging thing and it could go either way and he said having lots of people with access to recording equipment and to YouTube was a fantastic thing because it meant that everybody would have a better voice and that way also we would have more stimulus. I'm still not sure where I stand on that one because it's it's a bit of a yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because one of the people I planned to interview, Jordan Zappa, I've known since he was quite a young fellow and he, he started basically recording songs in front of the webcam and putting them straight on up on YouTube and his friends giving him critique and I think without that's given him so much more ability to go busk and do all the things that he he's doing now and yeah I wonder whether I, if I had the internet back in my day whether I'd ever be able to get up and and use it in that way and so yeah I think there's a lot of people who would do it anyway but certainly it's it's a very encouraging way to, to, to get started but the yeah the hands for me was just something I've, I've always wanted to feel like I was included in the folk scene and for me, it gives me an, a sense of identity with my... It gives me a way to identify and also represent the tradition, which is such a big part of my makeup. And for me, it's like my spirituality. There's a lot of people who feel that sitting in a room, all focusing on one thing, whether it's a religious ceremony or a cultural ceremony or, or a musical performance. The guy from Mississippi Records actually said this as well. He said it, it's... It does something for us, a bit like watching the fire. It's something good for our souls, but also for our, our sense of well-being. And for me, being a performer and being able to to kind of facilitate that is, is a huge... I don't know, it ties into my sense of worthiness and my sense of being and my sense of validity and being able to sing the ballads and also make them interesting to people, make them accessible to people is exciting because it, unlike my my own songwriting, I feel like I'm tied to a, a broader community of people who are living, but some people who have already gone before, you know, I feel like I have a sense of 
continuation. Yeah, almost sisterhood with people like Sandy Denny, who's not with us anymore, and the farm wife on the front porch who's been singing that same song about Lord Bateman in 14 different versions with 18 different kinds of verses on her banjo for her family just because it's fun. It's it's a fun thing to do. And strangely, the Strayhands has had a lot more success than, than my songwriting career ever has. I think partly that's because I've thrown a lot more effort and a lot more skill into making it known and telling people about it because it's much easier to say, hey, check out my band than it is to say, hey, I'm really awesome. <laughs> I really like that idea of being, you know, I'm great, give me money. Pay me $800 to come and play at your venue. I, I mean, I, I can do it, but it's not as easy as saying my band. But I think also partly it's because the arrangements are really epic. They're really complex. They involve lots of different timings. And the band has world music and jazz influences that I I don't have at all. Ryan Tooze is into Indian percussion and jazz and really obscure instrumental music. There's a metal band called Opeth that he really likes. O-P-E-T-H. Never heard them. I don't confess to... I don't, I don't pretend to know anything about it. There's another group called Ocean Size who is, he's played for me. Our fiddle player, Carmen O'Brien, she knows that music as well. And they've been saying that the arrangements that we're steering towards are kind of more structurally like Ocean Size and Opus than they are like a folk band, which is quite know, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, going back to influences, I mean, I listen to Leonard Cohen and Dick Gockin and really obscure stuff. They've got all of these other influences that really inform those arrangements. And when people come up and say, I love those songs that you wrote, that song Mad Tom of Bedlam or that song Tom Payne's Bones, I'm, I find it really frustrating, usually on the spot. But I have to, when I think about it, I have to take it as a compliment because those are people who've never been exposed to that in their lives. And the first time they've heard it is us, and they really like it. And they, I get to educate them about Graham Moore, who wrote Tom Payne's Bones, and I get to teach them about uh, how Mad Tom Fedlin was put to music by Nick Jones, and uh, I've forgotten his name, but it's on the website. You can check out the All website. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I get to teach them about that and about my influences, but mostly I just get to instill this new passion in them for something they've never heard before and, and suddenly it, they connect with it and they, it, the, the music and the instrumentation moves them um, emotionally and the words really snag at their imagery and their, their imagination. I think that's a really cool well, thing. sing Bonnie boys, Bonnie men boys, Bedlam boys are bonny for they go what was your first instrument that you played and when did you start playing it? I think it was piano. I was very bad. My teacher was trying to teach me, you know, using books. So she'd teach me every good boy deserves fruit and F-A-C-E. I can't read music, I'm illiterate. And she'd teach me all the notes and then she'd get me to play the notes. And I would do that very painstakingly. Da, 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 da. And then I would get to row, row, row boat. And I'd figure out it was row, row, row boat. And then I'd have heard it, so it was in my brain. And the next week when I went back, she would go, great, you practiced. And I'm like, yeah, sure I practiced. I definitely practiced. I didn't learn this by ear and just regurgitate it the next time at all, no. And then I did the same thing with flute and violin. 
and gave up on lessons until I was rescued by Faye Paskey, who's passed away now, but she was a short, gnarled, like really arthritic old fingers, cranky, lined, wrinkled old face, really long, black, lustrous, curly hair. She was an actual Romani woman. And she took a look at my learning style, and even though she didn't really have time to teach me the way I needed to, to learn, she let me learn by watching her fingers rather than reading the dots, and gave me some encouragement that way. And when she saw that I picked up the music and I could learn it and would keep going, she, she consented to keep teaching me and didn't kick me out of the course like the other teachers did. So you started with piano, you've tried flute and violin, mm -hmm. and you play guitar, obviously. So when did you find guitar? Or like, which one? So what is your main instrument? Is guitar your main mm. instrument yep. now? So John McCoslin and my mum went to a shop and bought me a nylon string guitar. I think it was for Christmas, and we took it to a festival. And I learnt three chords, and I stayed on those for a couple months. And then I learnt a couple of other chords, and then I then I went to lessons with Faye Paskey, who is really the reason why I play, because she was patient enough to figure out how I was going to learn and work with me. And how old were you when you... I think that must have been year 7 or 8, so I must have been 12 or 13. And when did you write your first song? <laughs> Maybe the next year after that. And do you remember what it was like? Mm, it was awful. <laughs> and also the next question was how does it compare to the to your latest song? It has an A part and a B part. I think probably on my own I'm still writing songs like that. So it's, it's not hugely different. I think it said it was like um, mist upon the water, the clouds turn pink in the sky. Um, it, was, it was pretty it was pretty teenage, girly, romantic. I don't write soppy songs like that anymore, but I think that's more life than music. I've got my first song from a title of a book. There was just this book called The Wheel of Fortune, so I wrote these lyrics. I'm looking for the wheel of fortune. Ah! <laughs> that's great! <laughs> I still it's, have a very, it's a very common theme for songs, you know? There's a lot of songs with that title or theme. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it still hasn't left me. I probably was about 30. There's so many great songs called The Wheel of Fortune. Oh man, what, is, what was the theme like? Oh, so just looking for the Wheel of Fortune, wondering where it was at. <laughs> awesome. Very nice and simple. That's, that's the key to good songwriting, really. Sometimes it's just about simplicity. I, I know, and I probably haven't ever told anyone about it. <laughs> I had to sing my first song, um, Andrew Patterson, who runs the Troubadour Wine Bar, which for years and years, kind of less so now, but was going to all these festivals. They ran a, I think they ran a folk club for a long time actually in Richmond. They have a first songs session at festivals. Andrew programs these every year and what he does is he gets three performers from the festival up at like 10.30 in the morning. It's not really friendly, musician friendly time, but you get up and I, I've done them with Greg Champion, with Vin Garbett, with Christina Olsen, you know, great, great lineups. But you have to do three songs in a round robin format. You take it in turns and the first song you wrote, the first song that made you want to be a performer and the first song you ever played in public. And I, so I've done it a couple times for a very select and lucky audience. But you have to go to one of those festivals and you have to go to Andrew Patterson's winery gigs to, to see it happen. I'm, I'm gonna have to definitely go to that. And I was wondering, what was the first song you performed live? Oh, that was a painfully depressing version of Anarchy Gordon, which I learnt from a Mary Black album. It's like 14, 15 verses of pure misery. Girl is wandering around her house going, oh, woe is me, I'm in love with Anarchy and he's totally hot, but Dad wants me to marry the rich sultan and I totes don't want to. She doesn't actually say, I totes don't want to, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> um, and she says, I will, I will make a vow, I will never marry the sultan 
for I love my anarchy. And the son, <laughs> her dad comes down and he stands at the door. Down came her father and he's standing by the door. I think it was eight, by the way. So you have to imagine a very serious, very strange eight-year-old standing in front of a crowd of people saying, at saying, genie, you're trying the tricks of a whore. You care nothing for a man who cares so very much for thee. You must marry Lord Sultan and leave Anarchy. Anyway, so she says, no, no, I, I will never. And her father gets all of her serving maids to come down and get they get her dressed up and they take her off to the church and she's forced to marry this Lord Sultan guy. And she comes all the way home and, and her father orders the serving maids to undress her and set her up in the bed for Lord Sultan to come and take her virginity. And she's dying of misery on the floor, begging her dad, like, at his knee naked because he's ordered her stripped, which is completely bizarre. I'm going to remind you again, I was eight. <laughs> and he's going, oh, come maidens, take off her clothes, loosen off her gowns. Anyway, before she can be raped by the Lord Sultan, as per the agreement with her father, who obviously has sold her as chattel, she dies of a broken heart. And then that night, Anarchy comes home. He's been sailing on the ocean to make enough money to save up and marry her. And he dies of a broken heart while kissing her cold lips. And that's the end of the song. That's the first song they sang in public. And where was that? The Ballarat Folk Club. Excellent. And did that inspire you to want to do the performing? No. That inspired me to never want to sing in public again. Uh, <laughs> But I, I did keep going, and I chose more age-appropriate songs. Eventually, it took me a while. I reckon your mum would have just went, "Yeah, you do that one." M my mum's my mum's a very cool woman. She's currently in America. Uh, she got headhunted by a bluegrass festival in Raleigh, who gave her a ticket and paid money towards her airfare to get her over there to represent Australia, the Australian folk and music industry. And my whole life, anytime I looked at a book, and she's She's got, you know, Carl Jung and very complicated stuff on the show, Shakespeare and Shane Maloney. <laughs> and anytime I picked up a book, no matter how small I was, she would say, well, you can have a go at it. You might not understand it, but you can have a go. And she never, ever in any of my artistic or educational forays shut me down. And I'm very, very lucky to have had a parent like my mother. She's a very inspirational woman. And so I guess I never, I never had that experience where... I was told I shouldn't try something because it wasn't appropriate for me. Until I got out into the wider world, of course, when everybody tells you you should be doing something else. But. She sounds like a great mum and that influence is quite amazing to have. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think for a lot of people, I've been reading a lot of Justin Hazelwood, you know, the bedroom philosopher. He's got a book out called Fun Employment, uh, where he talks about his path as, as a full-time musician and his career the mistakes he's made and, and kind of what he's been through. And I'm also reading a book called The Artist's Way, which is about creative development and talking to a lot of musicians because I'm living in Wang now, but I'm always around Melbourne and we're all musicians kind of trying to figure it out together. And I think the thing I've learned this year is that if you're surrounded by people who are telling you that you're wrong all the time, it can be really hard. And if you don't have someone the way I've had my mother saying, go for it, have a go, you might not succeed, but that's what you want to do, have a go. It can be really hard to get out there. And the more negative people you have around you, telling you that you're worthless or that you're not good enough in some way, you're not prepared enough or you don't know enough or you, 
you really should have done it this way. It's very easy to give up. I think those are the days where you get out of bed and you might organise yourself a day job and then not really try anymore after that. And that's a, I think that's a shame because it does take a lot of work, but mostly the work becomes easy once you have a little faith. And if you believe people who are telling you that you're dumb or implying that you're dumb because by saying that you haven't done enough research or you haven't done this the, the way they would recommend it, then you will get a day job and give up and start watching TV and eating Cadbury Dairy Milk Chocolate and doing fuck all with the rest of your life. The day Jeannie married was the day that Jeannie died and the day